Hi, I'm Paul Cheel, and you're listening to the Public Relations Podcast Smoke Signal. November is Global Measurement Month, and I'm thrilled to again be working with the Measurement and Evaluation Community of Practice for the Public Relations Institute of Australia to deliver a range of initiatives throughout the month to help educate and support the profession in delivering meaningful measurement. This year, we're producing a series of podcasts with global leaders in PR and communication, all under the theme of reimagining measurement and evaluation. Our goal in this most unprecedented of times is to explore how measurement and evaluation has evolved and look at how PR practitioners can better use measurement and evaluation to prove the value and improve the practice of public relations. Be sure to tune in each week in November as we release another podcast in this special series. Thanks for listening. In this episode, I'm joined by Tom Watson. Tom has written about measurement and evaluation of communications for the past 30 years, including being a co-author of three editions of Evaluating Public Relations. Although now based in England, where he's professor in the Faculty of Media and Communication at Bournemouth University, Tom was born in Australia, graduating from the University of New South Wales. He's worked in journalism in both Australia and England before moving into the world of corporate and consultancy PR. In 1995, he was awarded a PhD for research into PR measurement. I think all that tells us Tom knows his stuff when it comes to measurement and evaluation. Tom, thanks for joining me on this Measurement Month edition of the Smoke Signal podcast. Hello, Paul. Welcome. Thank you. The theme we're running with throughout this month is reimagining measurement and evaluation. As I've just outlined, you've been looking at measurement and evaluation for over three decades. Perhaps you can take us a, take a step back for us and give us a bit of a potted history of how you've seen the practice of measurement and evaluation in PR evolve over that time. People often wonder about history. You know, what's the value? Where, you know, what does it tell us about things? And in some ways, it tells us where we've come from, but also tells us quite often how issues come up again and again and again. Um, but in terms of the history of public relations and the history of PR measurement, we can go back as far as George Washington, that uh, the first president of the United States, and according to some American academic friends of mine, Washington, Washington's staff in what was the very first presidency in the late 18th century would actually keep tabs on what was being said about George in uh, what was the very basic uh, regional provincial media of the eastern United States at that time. So we kid ourselves if the ideas of PR measurement and media measurement and media analysis are new. It's been with us a, a very long time. Um, and through the 19th century, you know, there are evidences of people uh, doing effectively doing clipping services like we used like we used to have. Um, and the first one of the earliest examples of sort of analytical data being collected was um, a was at the Publicity Bureau of Boston, which is often regarded in the United States as the very first PR consultancy. And there they had a card index called, they called it the Barometer. And the Barometer listed all the editors and major journalists that they were dealing with and gave them a sort of positive-negative rating as to how they handled the stories and what their attitudes were. So it was a, it was a piece of early data collection. And it meant that if you were pitching a story, you had a pretty good idea 
uh, as to what their interests were. And this is, you know, it was handwritten, written on, put on cards, but it's what many of us have developed over the years. We, it's the intelligence gathering that is really important in public relations. Um, and most of the history of uh, PR measurement really is linked to the United States because that's where we find records of it. So um, by the late 1930s, there was a lot of interest in public opinion measurement. And Arthur Page of AT&T and the Arthur Page Society still exists. Page was probably the most important corporate practitioner of the first half of the 20th century. Page believed in opinion measurement. He believed in tracking attitudes. And that was used by AT&T to devise its programs to understand things. By the late 1940s, we actually find the very first example of how to do advertising value equivalence, which is the sort of orphan metric of public relations um, and should should have been knocked on the head very early. Anyway, there is an American practitioner text on how to do it. And that really tells you that in America there were two strands. One was media analysis. The other one was opinion research. Um, and these continued right through really until around about the 1970s, 1980s, when Jim Grunig, James Grunig, who's very well known to anyone who studied anything to do with PR about the excellence theory and his various things, uh, convened uh, a conference at the University of Maryland all about measurement. And he brought together people from uh, the academic side and people from the research side of the big consultancies. Uh, and they started working on far more uh, rigorous methods uh, that were introduced. And so that's when we started talking about uh, outputs, the measurement of distribution of stories, outcomes, which were the results. And then later on in the 1990s, we get a term which was originally called outtake, which is the value creation and is often now known as outflow. Um, and those terms. So that's as we move along. Now, while all this is happening, um, people are still using advertising value equivalents um, because they believed rather falsely that it gave some sort of indication of value. But the, that then always limited PR to being a media practice, whereas most of the practitioners, whether in government, not-for-profits, corporates or consultancy, were looking at organisations and their role, their behaviours, their actions out in the community, uh, across communities, as well as doing the sort of product publicity work that we get. So as we came up to 2010, we got to the Barcelona Principles, which are pretty widely distributed, which basically says AVE is not a realistic measurement, and they talked a lot about good practice and um uh, the Barcelona principles have been developed on, and they're a very good benchmark for people to look at. So that's where we are, where we're up to now. We're into the world of social media. Uh, we're into still into um, you know looking at issues of measurement and trust and reputation, and uh, you know it goes on and on. But if we go back to George Washington, he still wanted to know what people thought of him, and I bet Scott Morrison does and every state premier and every minister in the country has the same attitudes as, as George Washington and his people. What if you zoom into the last couple of years where we've seen, obviously, the world's been turned on its head with a global pandemic, PR and communications has really become 
front and centre. Have you seen any impact on evaluation? I mean, that's what the theme of this month we're looking at is reimagining it because of the, the environment we're now in, right? I, I haven't seen in the way of methodological development. You know, people have something. But actually, the global pandemic is the biggest ever communication measurement and evaluation scenario ever. You know, it is massive because we've had constant data monitoring um, and constant changes over policy developments. We've look, had to look at communication with the public. And we've had to look at, you know, public health communication. And this is, this is you know, the changes are almost live, what we're happening, whether, whether it's considered to be some sort of development of the nudge policy, which is, you know, seeking behavioural change, or it's just getting people to say, you know, here's, here's your, um, you know, here's where to go for your vaccination, or this is why you need vaccination, here's where to go for it, here's what happens with your second vaccination, your booster, this is about wearing masks, all of that. Everything is monitored. People are under the most intense purview that we've ever seen. Um, and yet it's quite interesting to see how the crossover between epidemiologists, these people who do all these scenarios, um, which certainly in the, in the UK, you know, um, have become sort of rock star figures, you know, um, we, you know, they're known by, they're on television, they're on radio all the time. But in some ways, epidemiologists are the, the data guys who have been working with the communicators and working with governments on policy. So, you know, what we have seen is enormous amount of data collection, probably the greatest data collection on, on behavior, on responses, on attitudes that we've ever seen. So I think it's probably in a, rather perverse way, a golden age for communication um, measurement and evaluation because the outcomes of communication have been so vitally important. So I'd be interested to know how do PR communication professionals take advantage of that environment? And maybe I'll frame that in that you mentioned the concepts of outputs, outtakes, outcomes, and there's mm. many yeah, variations and variants of that. I mean, maybe you could talk to a bit more about that, about where practitioners should be looking on that spectrum and I guess in that context of the of the environment we're in now. Practitioners have got to become more methodologically aware. The days of when understanding social science methodology and measurement and data collection were considered to be someone else's task or it's not us, you know, this is all about bums on seats or it's all about shifting product or it's whatever – um, have gone. I think we have to we have to grow up and become better at data collection. I mean, the media is now full of certainly in, in UK, Europe, North America, of people who are called data journalists um, and people who gather data and and ex express it across them across the media. And I think PR people have got to be just as adept at that as learn about data collection learn about how to interpret it um, because it's it's happened all around us. Now, the challenge for PR people as has been for a very long time, and it's been part of the reason why Paul and I wrote the book, is that very few people can find a budget for it. Because I remember when I worked in Australia, I used to do training sessions with um, the ambulance services and health 
health professionals. And they'd all said to me, but Tom, we have no budget. You know, we're, we're hanging on to our jobs. How do we do this? And I, so what I taught them then was how to use an Excel spreadsheet and how to, you know, use that, how to gather data in a way to express it. And I think that's something that PR people haven't been very keen on this, this, this data stuff where they see themselves as humanities people in a way. They like the word, the narrative, the creation of stories, uh, all of that. You know, what we've got now got to be almost against our better nature is to become very adept, knowledgeable handlers of data, how to gather it, how to process it, um, and how to, how to express it because that's, that's the challenge um, especially as PR is, as PR people will probably scream at this podcast saying, but I haven't got any money. There's no budget for this. So battle for the budget, but in the meantime, gather the data in any way you can, um, because any data is better than guesswork. Yeah. I read a piece recently, which said, you know, every time a PR person says, I, I'm, I'm in humanities, I don't do numbers, it kind of hurts the profession, right? We have to do that numbers. We have to do the data. Um, but to your point on budget, it is, you know, it's something I've certainly seen in agency, coming from an agency environment, but it's almost a chicken and an egg, right? If we're delivering something of value, insight that makes us perform better and deliver better value for the business, they're going to find that budget. This is where the role we were talking touched earlier about this idea of output, outtakes, outflow, whatever, um, and that's that I th- that's quite interesting because a, about a decade ago I did a big study on what should effectively what did PR people think the research imperative should be? What should academics be researching? Um, and sort of numbers one, two, and three were all about measurement, but the measure, the number one was how to demonstrate the value of PR or public relations, corporate communication to the strategic direction of organizations. And that is about how do we place ourselves not on the periphery of an organization or they're the folks who send the messages out, but as PR, as PR, as people who are seen as part of what used to be called the sort of dominant coalition, the central coalition of an organization where the communicators were seen as just as important as as the operations people or the finance people or the production people that were in there because we were seen as contributing to strategic direction. And that's where this this concept of outflow or outtakes takes us because that is about how we demonstrate value creation. Um, and there's a particularly a, a German model, which is, is in our book, um, but it's been around probably about a decade, which has a rather unfortunate title. It's called communication controlling. And controlling is a German term for um, management or the, the management of organizational management rather than, you know, we have ways of controlling you. Uh, it's controlling is their term f- for sort of management accounting. Um, and what the German, our German colleagues did was sit, sat down oh, a bit over a decade ago and talked to the organization responsible for management accountants and is calling it the communic- controlling variety. Um, and they basically said to the management accountants, well, look, how, how do we express value 
to you and the management of organizations. And they came up with a, a structured model called communication controlling, of which the top end of it is is the outflow. And so what the outflow does is says, well, what value is created? What was the impact on the strategic and financial targets of the organization? And what was the impact on effectively the accumulation of assets, the development of capital? And the way they looked at the indicators were, you know, obviously things like sales, project agreements, the way that an organization was able to help reduce its costs, what its reputation capital was, what its brand capital was, uh, brand value was, and, and how employees performed. I mean, not all of these at once, but, you know, the strategic, um, if we're getting back to what do we learn from the um, this, this dreadful pandemic, it's been about helping people behave in a way that's societally beneficial, to have their vaccinations, to wear their masks, to... Uh, you know, take part in lockdowns, even though it grates against everything they want to do in their lives. This is where there's an outflow, if you like, of all the communication activity has been that we've been able to help society's performance change against what it would naturally want to do, which is to be free and not encumbered. And then we'll have to help people come out of that into a way which isn't, which is positive. There's so much in there. I'll, I'll make a comment first on, on that dominant coalition piece is, to me, that's the oppor- opportunity that the global pandemic presents. We are now part of, you know, if we're doing our jobs properly, we're now part of that dominant coalition. We have the seat at the table because communications has been front and centre, right? So we are now in that position to influence and provide that influence more so than ever before. So that's that's the opportunity. And then on that on that German model, which, yeah, sounds really interesting, I guess the challenge for someone listening would go, I'd love to look at all those different elements and outcomes, but how do I actually do that? Because that's a big job to measure and monitor that, right? It is. I mean, the, the, what the German model has, I mean, I've talked about the, the top end of it, if you like, the gold, the gold standard or the platinum standard end of it. But what it had was it didn't say that other elements weren't important it just its focus ultimately was on the, the creation of value, but it did look at well, you know, look at what were the inputs, what were the outputs, you know, how do we how do we look at the media distribution that and, and communication distribution? It looked at some of the outcomes, but its its whole drive was to say, well, if you're expressing, uh, if we're expressing what communication delivers, at the end of the day, you've got to show that it. It contributes to the organization's performance. Now, you know, that we do our dissemination of messages in whatever method well and consistently and, you know, and effectively, that's important. But at the end of the day, it really has to be shown where does that contribute to the performance of the organization? And by, that can be a charity, it can be a governmental, government, you know, department, et cetera. But um, the the I said I'm sh- I, I'm not exact I know, I know the um, in our book the um, communication controlling is in there along with other models and there probably have been some developments on that and I'm sure uh, within within Australia Jim McNamara has written very similar ideas because he's been part of of these international discussions so the information is there and it's in fact the information has been there for. Long time before 
we wrote our book, there is plenty of information available online from uh, organizations like the Institute for Public Relations of the United States has been excellent on putting together material which is sort of written by a combination of academics and practitioners with the aim of being read by practitioners, not by academics. And it's usually illustrated by uh, case studies from awards and things like that. And a lot of the case studies show good practice based on relatively low budgets because I know that's it's an issue for PR. You know, how do you get the budget? You've got to show, demonstrate results to prove that you can. it's worthy of more funding. Yeah, I think your point's well made. How do we make uh, communications show the value that's delivering the business? What's the business impact, right? But one thing you've written about previously, which is somewhat controversial, you've said we shouldn't be talking about ROI, which is a common way to refer to it, right? What's the return on investment from PR? But you've you've said that's probably not the right terminology to be using. Yeah, it's it's an inter- it's it's one where um, worked on this with uh, a German professor Ansgar Zerfass, who's another person that practitioners should follow up on because Ansgar is is a, absolutely probably the the top PR academic. Uh, in the world at present, and, and a terrific guy. Our, our view was what we talked about in as terms of return on investment um, wasn't what managements talked about return on investment. They talked about return on employed capital um, and had quite they had a range of methods of showing it, whereas we couldn't because we were often dealing with intangibles. So things like employee performance, reputation value, um, your cost reduction are all very difficult to show as return on investment, and and I'll give an example from my own time as a practitioner. It was my firm used to advise KPMG in in part of the United Kingdom, um, and we often had discussions with their accountants. They were dealing with ROI um, and uh, you know advising companies and doing audits, and we looked at various ways to try and express. Um, what we were doing. And they would say to me, but the problem with this in, in putting a financial value on anything like this is that you can't add it to the balance sheet. You know, it's it's no, for example, advertising value equipment. You came along and say, well, look, we've got in the last three months, we've gained £50,000 worth of value for you in, in media coverage. I mean, it's, it's bogus, but whatever. They would say, but I can't put £50,000 on the balance sheet. It doesn't exist. It's a notion. It's a it's a concept. Um, so we we then worked with them on other indicators which were non financial, um, and de- you know they wanted to reach particular media or they wanted to engage with particular uh, bankers or financial institutions and things like that. And we looked at ways of getting to these people, and that's what they then said. That was the value for them. It was the intangible access they got or it was the interest that they had in a particular service that came. It wasn't about return on investment. It was about meeting their their non-financial objectives. Yeah, I think the the AVE, the obsession is it's one number that's easy to understand, right? I think we do we just have to get accept that it's never going to be one number. It's going to be a myriad of things that we need to pull together and show the to show the value. Yeah, it's it's a classic. AVE is a classic of the that statement of easy, simple, and wrong. Um, and uh, you know, I think that's again. Um, I mean, AVE has been 
repackaged as PR value I've seen and, and other things like that. But yeah, this idea of one metric, it's a bit like, um, there were some organizations and some marketing organizations quite heavily is net promoter score, which is a figure where they basically go and beat up all their staff, which is unless you, you know, have a sort of zero to 10 and unless you're basically delivering results where our, the organization's image is sort of between eight and 10, you're failing. But the problem is that they're beating up the communicators over what could be other organizational failings. So if the company can't deliver on time or its products aren't good or its pricing's lousy or the customer service is poor and you're judging the communication on net promoter score, you're, you're getting false readings as to what's going on. So we have to have a portfolio of measurements uh, and some of them can, need to be um, intangibles as well as, as well as tangibles. I mean, if you're working for a sales-led organisation it's not unreasonable or it's quite sensible that a lot of the public relations, the marketing type PR or, you know, product PR activity is geared towards results like sales. But it doesn't tell you that that can only be part of the, the picture of the work of the communicators. Yeah, I like that portfolio of measures. We've talked about a lot of the challenges. I mean, what are some of the positives you see happening in evaluation and measurement today? There is a great. I think there's a, a greater understanding than there used to be. There was a there was quite a long period um, where it, it it everyone said it was in the too hard basket, you know, and um, hence they would fall back to very simple measures. But I I do see the development of communication in the not for profit sector um, over twenty years has been quite phenomenal. What used to be a back you know a bit of a backwater you know, of uh, under-resourced and weak methodology. I, I often see some terrific research work that's done via not-for-profits to understand their sector, to understand their publics, um, to, f to use it in data for campaigning purposes. And I think it's, you know, if, if we want to look at the really positive thing is, is how much the not-for-profit sector has developed um, into very high quality communications. So I think that's, that's one of the things I, um, government, I know in the United Kingdom, uh, under Alex Aiken at the cabinet office in, in London has become a vastly more sophisticated operator in terms of use of data and, uh, and a whole portfolio of measurements. I mean, Alex has been an absolute star in that field. And I'm sure his name may be familiar because he does appear on Used to appear on the conference circuit, um, which uh, and and so I, I, he he brought that in from local government in the UK into 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 the cabinet office. So I think they they're both two very good sectors. So that's pos really positive news. I think. All right. One final question: If you could change one thing about how we measure as we head into twenty twenty two, what would it be? My personal choice would be to go for develop portfolios that people understand that they have a range of data collection. Uh, in terms of a single methodology, I think we need to go and look um, at what epidemiologists have been doing, um, what how they've collected data and how they've interpreted it. Now, there's been a lot of criticism of them you know, about their range of data and whether they got things right and wrong. But I think um, 
what they've been doing um, has developed a lot over uh, the past two years, and I'm sure there are message lessons to share with communicators who are working on 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 on, on big scale projects. Thank you so much, Tom. That's been a great overview of the landscape of PR measurement and evaluation. I've really enjoyed our chat and appreciate your time in joining us on Smoke Signal Podcast. Thanks, Paul, and uh, best wishes to everyone in Oz. And uh, I just hope you can get out and travel sometime soon. It'd be great to see some of you. I am Paul Cheel, and you've been listening to Smoke Signal. Thank you for listening, and as always, remember to rate Smoke Signal on iTunes or subscribe via the blog. Just search Smoke Signal Podcast.